And um, I'm going to welcome Bob McClellan up to introduce today's speaker. Bob is the Section Chief for Occupational and Environmental uh, Medicine. He is um, a professor of medicine, um, I have to get it all right, medicine, community and family medicine, and the Dartmouth Institute, <laughs> and also uh, the, the medical director of Live Well, Work Well. So uh, when I um, was thinking about who I might invite uh, for occupational environmental medicine for this year, uh, it really became very obvious that uh, as a, a responsibility for the health of our workforce, one of the biggest events last year was the shooter. And so uh, given that, and given that, in fact, we are not unique, I felt like the most obvious thing to do was to devote our session in occupational environmental medicine to workplace violence. And when I was thinking about who to invite, I called uh, the current uh, medical director of uh, the Occupational Safety and Health uh, Administration. And without a beat, he said, I should invite Dr. Lynn Van Mael. And fortunate for us, she agreed uh, promptly. And so I'm delighted that she's here today, now that I spilled her water all over the electronics. Um, she uh, holds her uh, MA and PhD in clinical psychology from the University of uh, Missouri, Columbia and completed her clinical psychology internship at the Portland VA Medical Center in uh, 2000. Um, she is the national director currently of the U.S. Veterans Health Administration's Workplace Violence Prevention Program and the second vice president on the national board of directors of the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals and an assistant professor of psychology at Oregon Health and Sciences University. Thank you. Um, she has an extensive history of uh, working to prevent violence in healthcare settings, emphasizing multidisciplinary, data-driven, and evidence-based threat assessment and management practices. And in recent years, she's provided subject matter expertise to the Joint Commission and served as an invited member of the FBI symposium faculty addressing targeted attack prevention and consulted with the Performance Advisory Committee following the Naval Yard shootings. Um, her violence prevention solutions for healthcare settings were actually published in JAMA in 2016. Um, over the course of her nearly 19-year career with the VHA, she's received numerous awards for her work in threat assessment and management and service to returning service members from Iraq and Afghanistan. Thank you, and please welcome Dr. Van Miel. Thank you very much. Uh, sound check, can you hear me? Excellent. Today is going to be a slightly different medical grand rounds. Um, typically, my experience with grand rounds has been that we have a topic, a disease process, a pathological response mechanism that we need to understand. We talk about our randomized controlled clinical trials. We put those up and compare, and we come up with a very nice solution. The data points us in a direction. We have a conversation about how we're going to implement, and we're on to saving lives. And it doesn't work that way in violence prevention because who's going to be the hospital that we use our randomized clinical control trial and say, you get no violence prevention at all whatsoever, right? 
So we have to be a little bit more creative with our work and uh, want to share with you some of our journey that we've been on in the Department of Veterans Affairs and also some of the issues that have come up on a national and a little bit perhaps grander scale outside of healthcare, what we've learned and what we can bring into this conversation that could inform the work that we take on in healthcare. As a member of the Department of Veterans Affairs, I want to thank anyone in the room who is a veteran. If you are here, if you happen to be a veteran, you're willing to acknowledge who you are, that'd be great. Thank you very much. For those of you who have veterans who are in your families, and for those of you who provide care to veterans, thank you very much. Um, I know that you have a relationship with the White River Junction VA, and that many of your students, interns, and residents rotate through that facility. So thank you for supporting them in that work. I won't go through every single person on this slide, but these are my heroes. These are the people who have created the foundation upon whose shoulders I stand. And if we do our jobs well, hopefully, we will be the next generation of shoulders upon whom others will stand to be able to continue this work. So these people have done incredible things to help us understand the risk factors, the protective factors, and what actually works in general in threat assessment and in violence prevention, and then specifically bringing it forward into healthcare. So wanna make sure that we acknowledge who's gone before us. Today, we have to publish our standard objectives, right, of what we wanna accomplish. I would very much like to be sure that by the end of today, that you have um, the ability to identify at least five elements of what you should be looking for in a violence prevention program in a healthcare setting. All right, so that's number one. Number two, Take a look at the kinds of violence that we experience and what the different pathways look like to get there, right? and what the behavioral implications might be as you see someone escalating up that pathway. And finally, then, what, some are, what are some of the protective factors that can be put into place to help someone back down off of that pathway? Right? So those are the formal objectives and the ones that are published in all the brochures. Here's my little nefarious one that I want to make sure I highlight. It's that you are the current and the future state of medicine in this and perhaps other countries. For you to become an educated consumer about healthcare violence prevention gives us the opportunity to have you go forward into other settings to evaluate them critically and to be an appropriate consumer of what it should look like. And if it is a target-rich environment for improvement, perhaps you will be an agent of positive change. So that's what I would hope to achieve today. Workplace violence in healthcare, how are we going to get there? Well, we'll talk a little bit about violence prevention in healthcare, what the situation is. Healthcare institution attacks. This is um, some unpublished data, peer reviewed and presented in 2015 by the FBI Behavioral Analytics Unit. And Molly Ammon has been generous enough to share her work with us so that you can get a little bit of a background on some of these things, tell you a little bit about what we're up to in the Department of Veterans Affairs, and then give you a model for what that might look like. Kick its tires a little bit around some of the pieces of that model and then have a conversation with whether or not this actually works and where do we go from here. Right. So it's a somewhat ambitious agenda for 45 minutes. So keep your hands and arms inside the car at all time and <laughs> let's get going. Right. One assumes at this moment in time that with easily over 200 years of advanced education cumulatively amongst all of us within the room that you can read. I will not read you bullet points. 
So um, <laughs> I heard a couple of thank yous. Good, we're on the same page. If you have any questions, however, please do let me know. These, um, uh, Dr. McClellan mentioned our JAMA article, and these were some of the statistics that we cited to make the case for why do we have a problem with violence in healthcare. Interestingly enough, this phenomenon is not new. It's been well documented for decades and yet we're not seeing a particular downtick in these numbers. Just recently again, days ago, two months, almost to the day ago, uh, the Joint Commission published yet another Sentinel event, citing, look at this, very similar numbers around the phenomenon of violence in healthcare. The Government Accountability Office commissioned a special report and came up with almost the exact same numbers that was published in 2015. One of my favorite oldie but goodies, though, because I have to toss up a classic, is in, in 1990, right? Trainees are particularly vulnerable as opposed to, I don't know what you call them uh, here at uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, but we have uh, full house, we have house staff and then full house officers, the difference between uh, medical students, residents, and fellows versus attendings. So our trainees, our house staff versus our full house officers tend to be at greater risk for violence during their initial phases of education. So it is uh, something I think that's very important and I appreciate very much that you value the topic and wanted to bring it forward today. The International Association of Hospital Security and Safety in 2016 did a very nice survey of violence in healthcare. And for those who aren't familiar with the NIOSH typology, type one, violence in a workplace, is violence that happens and it just so happens that it is your workplace that it happened in. For example, someone steals a car, attempts to drive someone over, they just happen to steal a car from your parking lot. Nothing particularly associated with your particular facility function or, or other purpose. Type two are your clients or your customers who have a legitimate reason for being in your workplace who are then the source of violence. Type three is coworker or lateral violence, and type four is domestic or intimate partner violence that migrates into the workplace. Notice in healthcare, what is our number one source of violence? Some studies will go as low as 75%, as low as. Right? So three quarters at least of the violence that we experience in healthcare is because of the individuals who come onto our properties. So let's think about what we want to do with that, given that this is not a jail system, it's not a prison system, we're not the Department of Corrections, we're health, we're healthcare. Most people come into healthcare because we have a compassion for wanting to see people improve and get better. It doesn't occur to us that the people that we're here to help would want to harm us. It's not in most of our mindset, it's not part of our gestalt. Unfortunately though, it happens. And um, this was a, a very tragic case uh, in the um, Pathways home in Yountville, California. For those of you who are not familiar with Yountville, it's in a setting not too terribly different from this one. It's in the Napa Valley in California. It's a very lovely area of the country. It's very beautiful, very popular place for people to want to live and work because of its outdoor recreation activities and other um, natural resources that are very nice. And unfortunately, we've just recently had a triple homicide there on that campus by a patient. Right. You are not strangers to this phenomenon, as was already mentioned. It's the impetus for why we are coming together today. Now, 
I do have to say that when I first read these, uh, the news stories and looked at this, my initial thought was that this was an example of one of the kinds of violence I'm going to talk to you about with the Behavioral Analytics Unit study. And learned later it is not. This was just pretty much flat out um, a, a psychopathic homicide, um, if, you, if you'll take that terminology from me. What I do have to give you a head nod, though, for that I don't often see and this is kind of cool, I'm, I'm digging around, and noticed that a good news story is actually published in, you know, so thank you very much, Valley News, for bringing forward awareness that in response to a tragedy, action is taken and people are doing something about it. Usually we just get blasted for not having done enough, for being inadequate, for having failed, right? As Yours truly from the Department of Veterans Affairs during election cycle years, we tend to experience this phenomenon in spades. This was nice to see that people wanted to spread the good news that the folks in your facility are taking this very seriously. So hats off Dartmouth-Hitchcock and to the Valley News for that. This is the um, Supervisory Special Agent Molly Hammond. Um, is a personal friend and she's also one of the smartest women I've met in a long time. And they said, you know what, let's learn more about this. She has a special interest in violence prevention in healthcare. So this is an open source study that they did, reviewing almost a little over 2,800 different news sources with a set of criteria for taking a look at studies, so things that happened at MassGen, things happened at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, things uh, would have made this study um, if, the, if the sample size would have been open at that point in time. They collected things through 2012. Um, Johns Hopkins. So these are the events. Um, what happened at Fort Bliss with uh, Timothy Fjordback being murdered, a uh, neuropsychologist. So unfortunately, we know these stories. We hear about them. So she said, let's dig down into them. Let's find out a little bit more of what we can about what motivates these kinds of attacks. First of all, all right, she is an exploratory review. And what it isn't is a detailed finding of all of these kinds of situations. So it's the first path first pass at, at understanding this phenomenon a little better from the FBI's perspective. What they found in their demographics of their offenders is that there are 47 of the 50 cases that met their criteria, 47 were males and, 30, and three were females, with a median age of 51, and most were married. Of that, two-thirds, again, were still together. Right? So this is the demographic. Looks an awful lot like one of our standard normal patients. Right? Doesn't really stand out particularly to us. Um, but before I show you that slide, any idea of what motivated these folks to enact violence in a healthcare setting? What drives these people? What got them going? Any ideas? Yes. Dissatisfaction with care. Disgruntlement with care, right? Number one. Number two. Disgruntlement with care. If you're in the VA, it's disgruntlement with your benefits process, right? As well as your health care. Any other things that you can think of that would bring folks into a medical center? Our patients, customers, visitors, beneficiaries, caregivers, visitors. Personal Why? Relationships. Personal relationships. Yes. History of mental illness. History of mental illness. Okay. Anything else? Ma'am. Drug seeking. Drug seeking. Okay. Um, interestingly enough, let me make a quick comment about the mental illness piece. There's a fabulous study that was done by John Monahan. Um, and it's published as the MacArthur Studies of Violence, the most comprehensive work that's been done to date on mental illness and violence, and finds that on average, 
folks with severe and chronic persistent mental illness are actually 11 times more likely to be the victims of violence and to die violently than to be the perpetrators of violence. And yet, all the time in the news, we hear um, Gabby Gifford, uh, Batman Aurora campus shootings, etc. This person had XYZ diagnosis. And that's helpful to us in the lay population to hang our hats on. I don't understand this behavior. Only someone who is truly crazy or sick could possibly do this. So therefore, it must be because of. And yet, we find that that's usually not the case. Intimate partner violence gets it, number one. Number two shocked me, mercy killings. I had no idea. I went, how would we ever have an idea to look at that one? Well, now we do, right? And then number three is disgruntlement with care. So when you take the top three together, that accounts for almost three quarters of the violent motivations that we're there to be able to detect in this particular study. What's interesting to me is that slightly over a third of them are, all, are wrapped up in healthcare alone. Only one third. So an awful lot of violence happens on our campuses that has nothing to do with what it is that we do. Why we exist, what our service is. That's something for future research. If you get the bug and you say, this is really interesting stuff, and I want to be the next person to stand on the shoulders of and build the next layer, Let's figure this one out, right? What are going to be our tip-off signs to someone who is at risk of engaging in a mercy killing, given that that is so high? I, I was still wrapping my head around what we're going to do with that one, right? Connected into patient relationship, here we are once again, approximately 75%, a little less in this particular case, it's closer to two-thirds, right? Had that relationship with us. And then an employee relationship, and then the other one, no relationship at all whatsoever, just came onto the campus and that was the violence that they transacted. So out of this particular study, and it's, we could take all day to go through this study, but I'm just gonna summarize the, the key findings. All three of these areas, the top three cases, the top three things that come together as a motivation for violence, they had high lethality, right? People didn't miss. They didn't know. There was one mercy killing that went astray, but of the 11 mercy killings, 10 were fatal, right? Nearly half of the cases involve shooting in a patient room. Right? Get all the way into the patient's room, which is slightly different than the data that we've seen in other situations that suggest that emergency departments are your first line. Right? So people who had an agenda of predatory violence intent, and we'll talk about the difference between predatory and affective violence, made it all the way into the patient's room to be able to transact that violence, which means they passed an awful lot of us with eyes and ears on the way through to get there. Are we educated consumers of what to look for in the behaviors that are actually of interest and of value? Parking areas. This does not surprise me because violence tends to happen on the perimeters of security. So people will say, well, our solution should be that we get magnetometers. We're going to get metal detectors and put them at all of our entrances. Take a look at federal courthouses. Federal courthouses have magnetometers at their entrances and you have to you know, go through so that someone's not going to go kill the judge. Where does shootings happen? on the stairs to the courthouse to get into, right? So prior, so what you wind up doing by setting up a perimeter is that you've got your perimeter where people on the inside have the perception of safety, whether they are or not, and they stop looking for signs that they could be at risk, and they tune out. And then outside of the perimeter, you've now extended the area that you have to be able to resource because now you've pushed violence out here, and this is now the larger area that you actually have to be able to manage it. 
So some things to consider when we start putting in our different strategies around violence prevention. Nearly half of the offenders died in the attack, which is slightly different from, if you will, the national script for what happens with a shooter, right? An active shooter situation, we've learned our script from Columbine, from Thurston High School, from Virginia Tech. What happens to the shooter? The very recent, within the last couple of years, on-air execution of a reporter and the cameraman that happened in the Washington, D.C. area. When the shooter was eventually apprehended, you'll notice, by the way, that I use the term shooter on a regular basis. Um, I'm not interested in using people's names who choose to kill other people. It's a little bit of a cultural piece in the threat assessment and management world. We're not here to glorify the lone wolf and the shooter, right? The goal is to remember the names of the people that they killed and that there's a human component behind it, that this is not about glorifying someone's decision to execute other people. <coughs> that particular individual, they found medical supplies and um, uh, survival supplies, uh, water, canned food, etc., in the trunk of his car. He was expecting to escape and to go on the lam for a while, and he even had medical supplies and a first aid kit available in case he got shot or anything happened to him in the process of the act that he had planned out. This is a very well-thought-out decision on someone's part. And as I mentioned, the case fatality was high. This is the tricky part. We see, and I'll, I'll share with you the pathway, we see pathway behaviors, things that people do as they progress towards an act of violence that are, that are typical, that are more understood around affective and around predatory violence, and they don't show up with mercy killings. Right? So like I said, target-rich environment here to do some research to help us understand what is going on with individuals who choose to come in and kill a loved one um, at the end of their life? I had originally thought when I had heard and read the headlines um, of your situation that happened here last September, that after being told in the ICU, hey, stepdad, you need to leave, I thought it was a mercy killing. It was not. Right. But that's, that was the first sign of that. So what do we do? about this phenomenon, right? How are we going to move this forward? Let me give you a little bit of a context of the um, little understanding of the context in which this model has been developed so that you'll understand maybe some of the aspects of the model a little better. In the U.S. Veterans Health Administration, we have approximately 150 major medical centers. We, 172 major medical centers, but we combine them into healthcare systems, and there's about 142 of those. We have over a thousand community-based outpatient clinics, and currently in our healthcare um, administration, we're about 340,000 employees. So, trying to standardize a violence prevention program across an enterprise of that size is a little bit of a challenge. I uh, sit on the international. Um, uh, um, I see the International Conference on Violence in the Health Sector. I know the, uh, <laughs> the acronym, but I'm like, wait a minute, what does it stand for? Initial Conference on Violence in the Health Sector, uh, Scientific Merit Review Committee. And um, one of the facilities that we reviewed for a submission for an abstract um, had said, hey, we've got three separate healthcare systems across the United States. We're trying to get this one and this one and this one all aligned, and it's a huge enterprise. And I went, really? <laughs> Is it now? I wouldn't have thought. Okay. Um, in healthcare as a whole, in general, where we kind of stand right now, the snapshot is that if someone comes in, like yours truly, I get my healthcare at Kaiser, 
If I go into my primary care physician, I brandish a weapon, I make threats, what's going to happen to me? I will be cited, I will be arrested, I will have an arraignment, and I will receive a letter in the mail that says, Dear Dr. Van Mail, thank you for paying your premiums. Don't ever come back. Right? You can get your health care somewhere else. Right? In the Department of Veterans Affairs, we actually have a federal regulation, it's CFR 17-107, that prohibits us from barring or banning eligible health care from, veteran from veterans regardless of their behavior. So if you are an eligible veteran, we will treat you. Now today, we might ask you to leave the grounds, but tomorrow we can reschedule that appointment for you and you'll be back. So we have, because of this requirement, been forced to develop some systems that we hope are effective and have some data around that to suggest that yes indeed we can do something about this because the option of just kicking them out to make the problem go away doesn't work or apply for us and frankly it doesn't work anyway. Because what tends to happen is that the protective factors that make a difference in whether or not someone's going to be violent are the very things that we can help leverage access to in healthcare. So by kicking people out, we actually make the problem worse and probably give them a grievance that starts them on a pathway, right? So the best thing that we can do is to keep folks in care because access to health care is violence prevention. So not only is it the legal obligation that we have, but frankly, it's the right thing to do. And the data suggests that that's the right pathway to take. So what is it that we do? Most of the time when people want to learn about our violence prevention program, they say, do you do employee education? Do you have a program that helps your employees recognize the escalation, the signs, the warnings, how to verbally de-escalate, how to intervene with personal safety skills? Do you do that? We say, yes, we do. They say, can we have your curriculum? Because then we too will have a violence prevention program. And I say, no, and no. No, because not because we're not going to share, but because what we've developed is really idiosyncratic in the Department of Veterans Affairs as far as the education program itself goes. There are lots of, it's a very um, lucrative industry uh, to teach healthcare providers uh, personal safety skills. There are many, many, many vendors who do that. Um, it's a joint commission requirement that you get these kinds of trainings, usually on an annual basis. What's really interesting about that for me, though, is the second answer to no because uh, then we will have a violence prevention program. No, you will have 20% of a violence prevention program. It is necessary that you train your staff, yes, but it is not sufficient. Because after they hopefully know what to do in the moment of a situation, what do you want them to do next? I would certainly hope that they will tell us about it. So you better have a reporting system. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty busy and filling out yet one more form is not what I want to do, right? So our reporting systems have better be fast, easy, simple, and not put a burden on folks. Otherwise, we're not going to hear about what happens. So we need to make sure that we get reporting systems out to people. And at this point in time, you say, great, I've educated people, they handle the situation, they know what to do, and they've told me about it. Now I've got a violence prevention program, right? No, you're OSHA's best friend now, because what you've done is create a situation where you now have a well-documented hazard that you've done nothing with. 
right? So that's what happened in Florida recently to the tune of a $72,000 fine because you had a well-documented hazard, didn't have a system in place to handle it, and now you've got a willful violation, right? Michael laughs that I say this, our, our colleague over at OSHA. He's like, yeah, you're right. That's exactly what they've done, right? So we better do something with it. And what is it that we better be doing is we better be assessing the hazard, right? Using data-driven, evidence-based best practices, which currently at this moment in time in the evolution of the science is something called structured professional judgment. It's the best that we've got right now. And after you do the assessment, then you use that assessment to customize the management plan, tailor it. It usually involves some sort of clinical care, Right? And then we need to get that information out to people. You have to communicate the plan. Then you have a comprehensive violence prevention program. Right? So there it is, objective number one met. There are the five elements of your comprehensive violence prevention program. Okay. In the Department of Veterans Affairs, for those of you who ever work over there, oh, I'll let you, yes, go ahead, take a snapshot, that's totally cool. We're the VA. Yeah. There you go. Oh, right. hey, here you go. For you guys, then, that's the PMDB program, the Prevention and Management of Disruptive Behavior program. That's your disruptive behavior reporting system icon. I established that. Uh, my job is the best job in the world. I get to find out what really smart people do, steal their ideas, and promulgate them. Right? Yeah. Right? So one really great best practice that we come, came across was out of the Baltimore, Maryland healthcare system. And they had developed a reporting system that was elegant. So we stole it. Right? And now everybody has it. Uh, of course, we give them the, the credit that they're due. And we've developed out of that system the ability to do an annual workplace behavioral risk assessment so that your workplaces are aligned with the appropriate training based upon the data from that workplace of what the real hazard exposure is. Right? That seems obvious, but people want to do a one-size-fits-all. Let's just educate everybody with the same stuff. Do you really mean to tell me that the gardener and the groundskeeper needs to know how to do a therapeutic containment? Is that really training that's necessary? Right? Let's take a look at making sure that the people who are exposed to a specific kind of hazard have the hazard training to mitigate that particular issue. Right? So we want the data to drive that. In the Department of Veterans Affairs, we have what are called disruptive behavior committees that address patient behaviors, and then employee threat assessment teams that address employee-generated behaviors. Right? We keep those separate, um, primarily because of different laws that govern the information sharing around um, uh, the different categories. So uh, with um, HIPAA, for example, if I am engaging um, in trying to understand someone's behavior as a patient, the risk factors that I would want to be assessing, I can find an awful lot of information about them from the medical record. And I can do that because it's patient care, and they were in their role as a patient, so I can get into their medical record and do that. But if it's an employee, I need to have a signed release of information if it's an employee's behavior that is causing us concern, because otherwise it's a HIPAA violation. Right? So we have to have different people on different teams who have different access to information. And then our management plans, ultimately, this is where the state of the science bumps up against a wall. Right, truly. We've got really great data on what the risk factors are, what the protective factors are around violence. We've gone this model all the way around. 20 years ago, various conferences and um, the state of the, the literature um, and what people were presenting on was, here's what we did to assess whether or not this person was a hunter or a howler. 
right? Is this someone who makes a whole lot of noise but really doesn't pose a threat, or is this really someone who's posing a threat? And trying to figure out how to distinguish those two, we've come a long way with that. The assessment process has really moved forward. So now what we're hearing people say is, yeah, 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 I know I've got a hunter. Yeah, I know I've got a howler. What am I going to do about it? What is the management plan? And we're at the case study level of evolution right now. So people will be presenting, hey, we did this with this case, and we understand that these were its features, and this is how we handled it, and it worked. Great. But we don't have any data yet with respect to what the active agents of that intervention plan were that worked for that type of a person or population that we can extrapolate to others. So we need larger samples, which is an ironic thing to say, <laughs> right? We need more people bringing forward information on what's already happening because the sample size is there, right? But it's underreported one in one in uh, five in healthcare. We've got that slide coming up. It's about a 20% reporting rate. So it's not that it's not out there. It's that people aren't bringing it forward to us. Okay. Um, an order of behavioral restriction is something that we do in the department. It's a limitation placed on the time, the place, or the manner of care. We don't kick people out, but we do say it is, we will provide you care, right? We will definitely do that. And it is up to us to say when, where, and how. We can change the time of care. You can only come in at 7 a.m. when there aren't as many other people around that you can hurt, right? Because the medical center isn't fully open yet. Or uh, the time is going to be between 2 and 4 p.m. when we run our red, white, and blue clinic and our VA police staff the red, white, and blue clinic in the waiting room, right? So you have a different time you can come in, a different place. You might not be eligible to receive your care in the C-Box anymore, the community-based outpatient clinics, but you can still come to the mothership. Right? You can still come to the parent facility. Or the manner of care. You will be under police escort at all times when you're on our campus. Right? That's a very severe um, uh, limitation. Because frankly, what are we going to do? And it's also one to, in, hard to enact. What are you going to do if you're under police escort? And someone says, you know, I need to go to the restroom. Well, that's not on your escort plan. What are you going to do? Cite me for trespass? Right? So that's a great headline. Right? <laughs> Veterans cited for using the loo at the VA, right? That's, that's not going to go too well for us. So we have to be really careful about the strategies that we put in place and what they do. And we have an electronic health record alert system that we call a patient record flag that we're able to communicate information that's necessary to know at the initial moments of an encounter to promote safety. That's the comprehensive model. Whoops, excuse me. So. I would love to spend a whole bunch of time going into each one of the little different pieces, which I get to do over the course of you know, a semester. I think we've got about 25 more minutes, so that's not gonna happen. But let me just briefly say about the education program that it needs to be customizable. When you go out and you are looking at other programs, when you're evaluating programs that you bring in, whatever your role might be, I would certainly invite you to consider whether or not you're getting a one-size-fits-all model or you've got something that's a little more customizable based upon the data that you have from your own workplaces so that you can line it up. And you can match up what's happening in your environment with the skills that you give those particular employees to be able to handle it. Not everybody is going to need therapeutic containment. Right? In our healthcare settings, our um, inpatient psych, our emergency departments, generally speaking, not all of them, um, 
some of our med surge units and our community living centers, which are our nursing skilled care units. Those tend to be the areas that we have the highest rates of violence. Those four combined account for over 50% of our violence. And that's the, the staff who work in those areas usually get the full range of, of skills. Our staff who are, are, we call them MSAs, our medical uh, service assistants, who are check-in clerks and our frontline folks who have interface, they're usually the first people to be able to detect whether or not someone has escalated and do some verbal calming. Right? We want them to have superlative customer service skills. They're also one of our highest turnover jobs. So for those of you who go on to run clinics to be uh, directors and managers of divisions and chiefs of staff, please consider that the caliber of the people that you have at the front desk can make all the difference in the safety of the employees of those ridiculously overeducated brains that you hire and pay a lot of money for, right? That it's the person sitting at the front desk that is actually protecting them. Let's move on to reporting. I like return receipt reports. I love Amazon. I absolutely love ordering things off of Amazon. I'm addicted because I get this little thing that sends me back a thing of saying, yes, you've got your order. And then I get a bleep and it shipped. And a bleep, it was delivered. I'm like, nah, ding dong. Yeah, I love that. That's so cool. So I would like for when people, for what we develop and what we put in place, for when people use it, they get some sort of positive reinforcement. Right? I'm a rat runner. I push the bar, I want a pellet. Right? <laughs> Put my quarters in, I pull the arm, I want money to come out. Oh, reinforcement cycles, right? Challenge. We're busy. We don't make reports, right? We get about one in five. And if I'm the person who makes a whole ton of reports and all of a sudden you're getting all of these reports from Lynn Van Mail's clinic, what the heavens is Lynn Van Mail doing down in that clinic that she can't handle this? Right, what kind of a psychologist am I that I have all of these behavioral emergencies that are coming out of my clinic? Right? <laughs> so I'm not going to say anything. Right? There's a lot of reasons why people don't report. We've absolutely got to start changing this culture so that the more you report, the better. We appreciate that this is a sign of strength, that you're opening that up. When we started our reporting system, the solution that we came up with was the disruptive behavior reporting system, the one that we stole from, um, from Maryland, and uh, did a few upgrades on it when we piloted it, and then we've got it out across the country. It was deployed in 2015. So starting FY16, I started tracking the data to see whether or not what people had told us before was being matched by what they're telling us now through the new system. And when the field reaches an equal level, so you're saying that this was your violence before and now the DBRS is giving us the same set of numbers, great. That's 100% of what you knew before. You're just at full implementation. So when the keep going and we start getting 200%, 300%, right, people are saying, whoa, we're getting so much more violence. I said, no, actually what you now know, if you knew 20% before and now you know twice as much as you knew before, you, only, you don't even know half yet of what is actually going on, right? I have one facility that is at 350% increase in their reporting rate, right? And they're freaking out that they're like, whoa, we, we can't handle this, we need resources. Yes, you do. You do need resources because this is a real issue and you are still about 25% not knowing what it is that's actually going on out there. You show me your 500% 
And then we'll start talking about what your true resource need and your true resource level is. So when I said the irony of my statement about wanting more data, it's not that I want more of these events to happen. I want people to tell us about what they already know about what is going on. That's what we need to address. The system that we built has an incident collection platform that allows anybody with a login, which by definition in the VA is all of our employees. You get to a computer, you can access the system, you can make a report. So it's not just people who have access to the medical record, it's not just the house staff, it's anybody can make a voice, uh, has a voice for that kind of concern. And we're developing an app so we can get it out to our vets so that they can start reporting to us as well. And so our community-based workers can have access to it in the field. Right? So that's one of our next big projects. Once it goes in, there's an email notification. Remember I said I like to press the pellets and the things go out, right? So you get an email back. Yes, we've received it. Here's the person that you can contact to get more information about the status of your case. Here's the contact. Talk to us. Keep the information coming. I want to reinforce that behavior as much as possible. And then we've built in an incident management side so that the data that are collected are directly the record-keeping source for what's happening so that we can track it over time. And then I can generate all my lovely stats because I'm kind of a geek that way. Right? And you can template it back over into the healthcare record that a disruptive event was happened. Once you've determined that it is substantiated and that there's a management plan that can go with it, we can put that back in the health record so people know. Right? What is it that you want us to do? What are the risk factors? These are the five screens, five data capture systems for it. Very simple, very direct, very easy. When and where. Who are you doing the reporting? Who actually experienced it? Because I could be reporting for something I saw happen to you. Right. So I could be reporting, it could have happened to somebody else. Who is the disruptive individual and gives a real short description of what happened? It is five screens, and if you complete one screen, it will automatically generate an email to me to let me know that that report has been started, because if you get interrupted or something else comes up, we can then follow up with you later. So you don't even have to complete all five screens before it is that we know that something has happened. Right. Start the report, we can get the information. It's only 32 questions, radio buttons, and drop-downs, checkboxes. Click, 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 click. So that people can get through this in under five minutes to be able to do it. And yay, you get your receipt back. And that way you can print that out. So in case a supervisor says, did you report this? It's a requirement of your job as a federal employee to report potential acts of violence in the federal workplace. You can say, yes, I did, and here's my return receipt. Well, what did you say? Well, that's up to me to know what I said. But yes, I did report it. Right? So our unions love this as well. And you can do anonymous reporting. As a threat assessor, I hate anonymous reporting. I hate it. Absolutely hate it. As a human who wants to know what's going on, I recognize that if you don't provide an anonymous reporting mechanism, people won't do it. I'd rather have 17 unidentified reports about something happening to give me a clue that I need to go pay attention than to have no one say anything. Um, we learned this the hard way from uh, the New Zealand air transport industry that stopped their anonymous reporting around uh, mechanical hazards with aircraft, and they had to be identified, so people stopped reporting, and they started having an increase in mechanical failures, and they said, this is way too dangerous. So they backed off of that, and they went back to anonymous reporting. Now this is the fun part, right? Now that you get the report, what are you gonna do with it? Something so that OSHA doesn't cite you, that's for sure, right? These are our committees. Now, in healthcare, we already get it that multi- and interdisciplinary teams are our best practice. Right? This is not a hard sell in healthcare. 
which is why it's so curious to me that multi and interdisciplinary threat assessment teams have not been as easy to develop and implement in healthcare as they have in every other industry. We are painfully behind the curve. Corporate America, K through 12, higher ed, right? U.S. Capitol Police, threat assessment teams in a multi-interdisciplinary process for managing the risk of targeted violence is the industry standard of care, and we are just getting there in healthcare. Right? This is interesting to me. These are some of the publications that have come out in recent years, uh, 2004, 2017, 2013. Each one of these recognizes that an evidence-based best practice a guideline that they put forward is to use an intern multidisciplinary threat assessment team. Right? And yet we're not there yet until, yay, just this year, we now have a published standard, which means that if you're not doing multi and interdisciplinary threat assessment practice and you don't have these teams established, you are now below the standard. Something bad happens in your facility and you can't point to the fact that you had this in place ahead of time, you're below standard and you will be liable. Right? That's, so when we have these bad things happen, it is going to be up to us to say we met or beat the standard and the other side of the wrongful death suit is going to say the standard was here and you were woefully inadequate. This is now a published standard by the International Association of Hospital Safety and Security. Security and Safety, excuse me. Why? Why do we care? This is you trying to stop something bad from happening, right? Good luck with that, right? So you say, well, maybe I should collect some more dots. Got to collect the dots before I could connect the dots, right? So let's collect the dots. Let's find the other people who might have information about this. And in the case of violence, those are going to be your law enforcement community or safety and security committees. They're going to be your, in the case of employees, your human resources folks and your supervisors. In the case of patients, they're going to be the representatives from other high-risk areas. They're going to be your nursing staff. They're going to be your frontline staff. They're going to be your house attendings. Right? Everyone should have a place in this. This is everyone's problem so that when something comes up, you can network with other people and find out the information you need to know to be able to make an informed decision. And you're still the hub, which is a problem. We take you out, you fall apart. So these people need to be trained in threat assessment and work with each other. So now you're an interdisciplinary team. You're catching a little bit more of what's coming through. And now, ideally, this is one facility. We shrink you down. And if every other facility in your community had the same kind of a team, then you would be able to, as patients move around, network with those other teams. So that, yes, we do this in the department, but can I put up Dartmouth-Hitchcock, your symbol up there? Can I put up Kaiser? Can I put up Ascension and Adventist and Mayo and Cleveland? Can we possibly envision a system where everyone has a multi- and interdisciplinary team so that as I transfer, Department of Defense, so that if someone comes from Walter Reed into my facility and then we put them out for fee basis care and they come over here, then they're activated and they go back into service and now they're back at Walter Reed. Do we have any ability to share the information that's necessary to know to keep our healthcare staff safe so that care can be provided? We are not there yet, right? Stand on the shoulders of other giants, let's build it, okay? So this disruptive behavior committee, it's the multi and interdisciplinary team. We operated underneath the chief of staff. That seems silly to say, but it's incredibly important. 
It needs to be under your clinical care, whatever you call that person, your chief of staff, your clinical director, your medical director, whatever that person is who is your senior house officer, ultimately responsible for medical care, is the person who needs to run these programs for the patient side of the house so that you are operating as clinical care, so that you have access to the medical record and you don't have any HIPAA violations on your hands. These are your members. You want it chaired by a senior clinician. It's clinical care. We're trying to keep people in care because that is violence prevention. The union is incredibly helpful. Right? I don't know how many facilities do or don't have unions of those of you represented here today, but the VA, we have five different unions, and we want the safety representatives on these committees. They let us know what's happening in the various different work areas. We keep our PMDB or our trainers present because if you're getting a hot area with a lot of information coming in, that area might need more training. So you would like to think that those folks could just deploy immediately and be able to get training out. Quality management because when, or risk management, when Joint Commission comes knocking, they're the ones who answer the door. Right? So you want to have someone from that committee or that office present. Legal counsel for obvious reasons and uh, support clerical staff. Law enforcement is essential. Now, if you are a facility that doesn't have a sworn law enforcement agency and you're a security agency, we would hope your head of security would have letters of agreement already in place with the locals to understand whose jurisdiction is where and who's going to be coming in when you need it. Right, so that would be something up front to have in place. Your high-risk areas are represented, your patient advocate, so that if you have someone uh, who doesn't like the orders of behavioral restriction that you place, you've got an individual who can be their now go-to and their liaison to help them manage and navigate the system. Privacy officer for information sharing reasons. And um, uh, for us, our patient safety, our risk management people also answer the door to OSHA. So we want to make sure that they're present if there's a workplace violence issue. And I like to have our clinical trainees on board, right, for the very real reason that they're the next generation who's going to go out and carry this work forward. So I need to make sure we're getting them trained up as well. Most people in their medical and um, graduate training get uh, very, very, very limited exposure to aggressive behavior management. So we want to make sure that we're getting that out there. These committees, their primary job is consultation to consult with clinicians on cases when they come up so that we can manage the issue sooner rather than later. Just-in-time consultation is one of the key things that we do. We also want to make sure that they are getting that individualized threat assessment out to people and using that evidence-based practice to determine whether we've got a hunter or a howler on our hands and then to communicate what the strategy is once we've done a customized plan. And then they also manage the education. They make sure that they're brokering education to the high-risk areas. <laughs> this is the really fun stuff. When someone asks you, hey, Doc, do you think someone's going to be violent? I hope the first question that comes into your mind that you pose right back is what kind of violence? Right? What kind of violence are you talking about? Right? Not all violence is created equal, and it's going to look different, and we're going to manage it in different ways. So the first type of violence is predatory violence, and the best way I know how to describe this to you, and it's, it's published in the literature. It's been there for a long time. Imagine your cat stalking a bird. Right? What do you notice about your cat? Oh, come on, you don't have a cat? <laughs> You've never seen a cat. What do you notice about your cat? They're intent. They're intent. Very focused. How do you know they're intent? What's their body doing? Tensing up. I love what she's doing. She's like, I'm doing this. <laughs> Got the shifty eyes. She's crouched low, not wanting to draw attention to yourself. Right? Predatory violence is very target-specific. It can have a very long period of time, 
It can have a lot of planning that goes on. And during that phase, I don't want to draw attention to myself. I don't want you to know what I'm up to, right? In predatory violence, the target of violence does not rapidly shift, right? So if I'm not the target of violence of this cat, it's some bird, right? And I go up and I yank on the cat's tail, chances are the cat might startle, but probably isn't going to scratch or bite me. If it's my personal cat, my shoes will be peed in tonight because I chased away the bird and my cat remembers, okay? But predatory violence does not usually target shift versus affective violence, right? This is the cat trapped in the corner of the fence by the neighbor's barking dog. Now what does my cat look like? Mm-hmm. Hissing, posturing, fluffed up, right? At this point in time, if I, loving pet owner that I am, go in to try to rescue my cat, what's going to happen to me? <laughs> you're going to get bit. You're going to get scratched. She's already going, don't do it. <laughs> I need to, oh, don't do it. I look like hamburger by the time it's done. I'm going to become your patient, right? So affective violence tends to have a very rapid target displacement. Targets can shift very quickly. What kind of violence do we see most often in healthcare? Affective. Affective violence is predominantly what we see. Unfortunately, we do have predatory violence, so it's worth thinking about both of them. Calhoun and Weston in 2003 published the Pathways to Violence. We republished again and validated in 2009. We're looking for behaviors that mark someone's progression along this pathway. Pathway to affective violence is four stages. And you'll notice on all of these graphs, the two that I'm going to put up, there is no timeline, right? I haven't marked my x-axis because it's different in different cases, right? So there is no standard to mark it with. We start out with a grievance, a gripe, a grit, a beef, a moan, something you don't like, right? And then you move into ideation. Now, I don't know about you, but I probably am nursing about three or four different grievances right now in my own head over things that I'm not particularly satisfied about, right? We get gripes, gritches, beefs, moans all the time. Not all of us, however, progress into thinking that violence is the solution to that and engaging in behaviors that suggest that that's what I'm thinking, right? But some people do. And then they do what's called breach behavior. This is when you start seeing people violating societal norms. For those of us who grew up receiving health care, there's a protocol, a plan for how you behave in the presence of medical staff. Right? We know how we're supposed to act. We've been getting shots since we were small children being inoculated. Right? Biggest betrayal of my daughter's life at six weeks old. What? You stuck a needle in me? Scream. Right? But we understood ultimately that that was okay. And we progress into being able to manage that and understand what the relationship is between us and our healthcare provider. When people violate that norm, when they transgress the behaviors that we expect of them, when it's very clear what they are, we're at breach. And then we wind up in an attack. This can go very, very quickly. Very quickly. The, it will go through all the stages, but it can rapidly go. The good news is just because you're progressing up the pathway doesn't mean that you can't turn around and go back down. Right? It's bi-directional. And at each one of these phases, we have the opportunity to be able to intervene and to turn it back around. So that's the good news. Predatory violence, similar in that it starts out with a grievance as well, a grievance that most of us will probably not even know about. Right? For example, um, I, the, the situation that you all dealt with very likely had a grievance that started way, way, way before you ever became involved as a medical center in that case. 
Right. Tor, let me give you a Department of Veterans Affairs example. Um, my clinical background is in post-traumatic stress disorder. So let's say I choose to not give a full diagnosis of PTSD. I don't think the diagnostic criteria are met. And I give an acute stress reaction or subsyndromal um, uh, PTSD, something that looks like it's got you know, some features, but we're not, we're not there yet. Well, that ticks somebody off because now they're not going to get their compensation and pension claim to go through. Right? So now there's a grievance. And it's got a little bit more of a narcissistic injury flavor to it. How dare you not diagnose me with PTSD? Do you not know who I am? Do you not know what I've been through? I am going to hurt you the way that you have hurt me. I'm going to show you what that's like and who you're dealing with. Now I've got to do research and planning. Right? And this is where predatory violence deviates from affective violence. And this is where the timeline can stretch way out from what it is that we see with affective violence. Because research and planning takes time. Now, fabulous thing that we have developed known as the internet, right, has made this process go a little bit faster. Right? If you haven't done it, go ego surfing and find out all you can about yourself. You might be surprised what you can find out about yourself. Things you may never have known about yourself, you'll find out from the internet, right? So uh, different sites can give you incredible amounts of information and you, the individual who is being targeted, may never know that someone is engaging in this kind of research around you. Stalking behaviors do tend to have an, an, an uptick or an increase at this particular time on, the, on this pathway. Then we see that back down a little bit. Now that I've got all the information I need, I need to put together a plan for how it is I'm going to do it. Right? So I've got this, I've researched, I've planned, and now I'm preparing. We call it a clue when someone who um, has been separated from someone else for protective reasons now buys a bus ticket or an airline ticket to do a geographical relocation. Right? That's someone who is preparing. Breach. This is where you also see stalking behavior, dry runs, attempts at being able to move this forward, and then the attack. So that's the pathway to violence of predatory violence. In the interest of time, all right, I want to very quickly let you know that we don't have crystal balls. There's no ability to say this person is going to be violent or not. We don't have wonderful predictive accuracy, but what we do have now is a process called threat assessment. And you can weigh out your protective factors with your risk factors and come up with a plan. Now, most people are trained to ask whether or not this person has a, um, a voiced a threat, do they have a named target, a plan, a means, a desire to carry out that plan. It's got a lot of face validity. Wonderful. However, clinicians unaided are usually about uh, 0.66 area under the curve, or about right two-thirds of the time. Right. Not very good, so that evolved into the actuarial approaches that were purely statistically model-driven, and um, that helped us. It got our um, area under the curve scores up a little bit, but the problem is, is they didn't have a lot of face validity, and it didn't inform what the management strategy should actually be. So we're in our third wave now of structured professional judgment, where you're taking the research from the actuarial science and you're informing clinical judgment with the risk factors that are actually relevant. All right. These are some tools that are available in the public domain. I highly recommend that your intern multidisciplinary team uses them. All right. I get no kickback at all whatsoever for advertising or mentioning these. Right? That's not what this is about. Um, the waiver 21 is good for um, 
uh, workplaces. It's in its third edition. The HCR20 is also in its third edition, and these uh, is a little bit is standardized and normed in forensic and psychiatric settings, but it carries over into the healthcare setting fairly well. We've developed our own in the Department of Veterans Affairs. How good are we? You're familiar with the area under the curve statistic, right? Flipping a coin, 0.5. Predictive accuracy, perfect, 1.0. Clinicians unaided are about 0.66. We get into the actuarial instruments that help us that have a discrete population that we can say from this group of people, these people went on to be violent. Therefore, with these characteristics, you've got an 80% chance of being violent if you're from this population. Fine. That gets us up a little better. By using a structured professional judgment approach, we bump it up into the 0.8s. Not bad for behavioral science. Not bad. In 2014, we published a VIOSCAN, which is a violence scanning instrument. Five, uh, this is a population of about 1,300 veterans that we've been following. And of those who were violent, we found that there's some characteristics that they did share. So we've put this out there into, um, the, the, well, into the general population, but it's being used in the Department of Veterans Affairs. These five things tip us off that we might want to be looking a little bit more carefully and coming up with a deeper dive. It is not a comprehensive violence assessment, but it is a screening. Threat assessment is ongoing and iterative. Just because you've gone through once and come up with a management plan and implemented it doesn't mean you're done. You're going to wind up following these patients and getting new information and going around this curve, but it's a Mobius strip because the next time you walk through, you're going to be upside down, right? So what are you going to do with these people? Collaboratively, please, people tend to support what they themselves create. The more things that we impose upon folks, the, impose upon folks, the less likely they are going to be willing to engage in the process with us. So we don't want to be doing that. There is no if-then statement. If this score on this instrument, then do that. The science is not there yet, right? So what can we do? Well, you're going to get me there, right? You guys are going to be the next level of science that brings us forward, right? But what we can do is weigh those protective factors out. What is the nexus of risk for this individual? Given the 21 or so risk factors that we're able to identify and the protective factors, how can we reduce that? What things can we put in place? What health care can we get them? that can make the difference. And this is the slide I want to be sure you get to. Before you leave, these are your eight protective factors that, oh, look at that. That if we get those in people's life, right, if we address these issues, what we find is that someone who has a two-thirds chance, predicted probability of violence, severe violence in a one-year period, we get even one protective factor in their life, we drop it. You add even more, and this is, that's a gorgeous curve. I just love that, right? We're not going to get down to zero. Right? But what's really nice about this is that in this sample size, uh, this is the uh, um, 1,300 veterans that we're, we're studying. We end up with an awful lot of people at the higher end of having more protective factors. So the bad news is that people do exist with very high risk. The good news is that not that the higher numbers are at the higher ends of the number of protective factors. Heavy load the protective factors, please. Right? Even one will, will help. You help someone get some sleep and you take care of their physical pain, you just put two things into their life that decreases their risk of violence. That's huge. Two protective factors, we're now down to 27%. Right? One quarter as opposed to two-thirds. 
in, let's see, we could spend a lot of time here, and I am very aware that we are out of time. So, let's see, how do I want to handle this? Let me put up the last little bit here of the communication because we've done this patient record flagging business, right? We've, we've talked about having an electronic health record alert. And the health record alert will tell you the information you need to know at the initial moments of an encounter to promote safety. We're closing the loop. It needs to be short, needs to be direct and related to the situation, okay? And ultimately, it is a collection of electrons on a screen. Right? It doesn't do anything. People will say, I want you to flag this guy. Well, what does that mean? Right? It means I want them punished. It means I want something bad to happen to them because they scared me. And that's not going to be helpful. What is helpful, though, is to remember that the patient record flag got there because you followed the process, that you did a threat assessment, and that you customized an intervention based upon the data, and then you communicated that to people. Now, when you go with that process and you have a patient record flag, what we have found over the course of studying this, and this is an old study, but it's a classic, so I really don't feel bad about giving you an older study because this has changed the shape of how we do violence prevention in healthcare. It's a Drummond article that was published in JAMA in 1989. When you follow the process, it works. People looked at this study and said, hey, putting a record flag on, if we just flag people, it's gonna drop the violence. No, flagging didn't drop violence. Engaging in a multi and interdisciplinary evidence-based threat assessment that informed a customized mitigation plan or treatment plan that then was communicated to people is what dropped the violence, right? Remarkably, well, you know, maybe they just decided not to come back. You put this record flag on them, they hated you, so now they're not back. Actually, what happened is that they started utilizing healthcare like their age-matched peers. They stopped coming to the emergency departments to get their meds refilled, and they started keeping their primary care appointments. Right? So this does drop violence. If you get all of these pieces in place, it works. Comments, questions, concerns? Ma'am. Please. No. So that is an, uh, another best practice that I'm going to steal and promulgate. It's developed at the uh, Central Arkansas Valley Healthcare System, and um, we would very much like to see our healthcare systems implementing those as one of the options that they could use. Absolutely. Every facility has a disruptive behavior committee, but not all of them do their clinical management in the same way. That's, that's the cutting edge of the science. That's where we need to be figuring out what actually works. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I work with the internal medicine residents, and I do hear situations where there's harassment. I'm sorry to hear that. Are they reporting, do you, getting that in, and then we're getting some plans on that? Well, uh, yes, kind of. Yes, kind of. Well, yes, yeah. it goes to, like, the pro chief of medical residents, uh -huh. the program director gets involved, calls, I mean, calls the VA and comes up with a plan, but I, I don't know anything really more than that. I have no idea what happens. If, if What's the case I'm thinking of, the patient who's harassing, sexually harassing one of the residents is also an employee. 
And that's why we keep two separate records, right? That's why, because most of our, a, a good chunk of our employees are our own beneficiaries. So we have to keep that line very solid and bright as to where we can handle that. I would very much love to have your medical residents and interns reporting to our disruptive behavior committees and the disruptive behavior committees having the relationship with your chiefs of your different services so that when your interns rotate through the facilities and through their different tours, that they have that opportunity to keep that connection. That would be a very nice thing to see happen. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I think given the hour. Yes, please. Thank you for, for giving us <laughs> a